Hi, this is John Grisham. Welcome to this week's edition of Book Tour. We are in Greensboro, North Carolina, at a bookstore known as Scuppernong. And I'm here with Clyde Edgerton and Wiley Cash. I'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this series. Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to Book Tour. Today, I'm in downtown Greensboro, North Carolina, in a bookstore called Scuppernong, which I'm told is a grape that grows somewhere around here in North Carolina. It's sort of a theme because when you walk in the front door of Scuppernong, the first thing you see is a bar, a real bar, not just a place where they sell coffee. My guests today are Clyde Edgerton and Wiley Cash, and our host is one of the bookstore owners, Brian Lampkin. Here's Brian. My name is Brian Lampkin, one of the owners of Scuppernong Books. As always, thank you for supporting our little store. Uh, Long live the independent bookstore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but independent bookstores cannot exist without the generosity of writers like John Grisham, Wiley Cash, and Clyde Edgerton. I don't want to reveal too many trade secrets, but John, Wiley, and Clyde and their publishers support stores like ours without asking for anything in return except our continued commitment to survival. We get so, yeah, yeah, it's true. We get so much more from this relationship than we probably deserve. And we are nothing but grateful to these three men tonight. All the way on my right is Wiley Cash, the author of three novels, A Land More Kind Than Home, of which another famous writer once wrote, This book will knock your socks off. It's so good to read a first novel that sings with talent. Wiley Cash has a beautifully written hit on his hands. Do you recognize that man, Clyde? You wrote that. <laughs> he's he's still right. so enthralled with reading that book that he's was that my blurb that it was, was your blurb. that was my blurb <laughs> that was my blurb did you actually write it? i actually read the book early on it's, it is a great book i mean every word of it. i did read it it is a great book yeah clyde edgerton next to me here was born in durham or near durham Right. Yep. Is the author of 12 books, including the novels Rainy, Killer Diller, The Bible Salesman, and The Night Train. Edgerton's short stories and essays have been published in the New York Times, Best American Short Stories, Southern Review, Oxford American, Garden and Gun, and on and on. If you live in North Carolina and hang out with writers, you'll soon accumulate a quick dozen who thank Clyde Edgerton for their careers. Clyde is the Thomas S. Keenan Professor of Creative Writing at UNC Wilmington. And the dedication in one of his former students' novels includes this gem of gratitude. Clyde Edgerton is responsible for anything that's good in this book. Okay, and the man in the middle is John Grisham, of course. He's the very reason we're all here. Camino Island is John's 30th novel uh, for adults. He's also got six Theater Boone kid lawyer books, which my kids love. If you don't know them, introduce them to your kids. Thank you all for being here. Let the conversation begin. Play ball. Hang on, Brian. Hang on. Before, yep. before we get started, um, we're trying to showcase the bookstores, okay? So uh, a bit about the bookstore. Um, when did you start it? Why, why did you start it, if you know? Yeah. Uh, can you answer that? I can. Uh, I can. The history. Yeah. So we're three and a half years into our life in downtown Greensboro. Um, I had a bookstore in Buffalo, New York for about 15 years, uh, but had no intention of ever opening another bookstore. It's exhausting work. But we just walked into this crazy, rundown, dilapidated space on South Elm, owned by a woman who's here tonight, our city council person, Nancy Hoffman. The place was a disaster, a wreck. Um, but one walk into that door, and I knew I'm stuck again. I'm going to be a bookseller again. <laughs> it was just, you could just see the future in that space. And um, Nancy did just an amazing job rehabbing the building. 
And uh, we're just thrilled to be in downtown Greensboro and to be part of a city's resurgence feels really great. So, so I prefer, you know, short titles to things. I and mean, I guess short names for bookstores. My favorite bookstore is Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi. My, uh, the, my fictional bookstore in, in this book is called Bay Books. I mean, they're really short. Yeah. So where the hell did Scuppernong come from? Yeah. <laughs> what was I thinking? I spent a lot of time on the phone going, S... See you. It's really annoying. well. I had to autograph about fifteen books oh, no. today. People who wanted the date, uh, a signature only date, but Scuppernong. Okay, Sorry. so there's no way I spelled it right. Um, it is a sort of North Carolina fruit. It's a state fruit of North Carolina, which we didn't know when we opened the store. There's the one in Greenville too. Is this Scuppernong books? No way. Yeah, and I almost went there. What? <laughs> yeah, I was. I was trying to. I was trying to figure out where to go. It's coming on books. And when you put the G-R-E-E in, oh, it no. Greenville. Oh, no. yeah. And I'm thinking, I don't think it's Greenville. I think it's Greensboro. So, yeah. Anyway, there's Thank one you. in Greenville. We could have done it remotely, I suppose. But um, Yeah, so, you know, we wanted a memorable name. We wanted a name that people couldn't uh, forget or ignore. And Scuppernong really works. I'm, I'm, I think I'm happy with it. I'm sort of getting used to it. I mean, it's taking <laughs> some work. Uh, in the last two weeks, I've signed at Lemuria in Jackson, yeah. Malaprops in right, uh, right. Asheville, um, Scuppernong here, and there's another one. But these names are getting pretty exotic, you know. Yeah, but I, yeah. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thanks for having us. us and, Thank you. Uh, uh, we'll we'll start the conversation. Go get them, guys. Thank you. Whatever the conversation is going to be. Um, first of all, I started reading Clyde's books in the mid 1980s. Uh, Rainy, the first one, um, Walk Across Egypt. Float plane, uh, killer diller. Back when I was still trying to finish my first novel, dreaming of writing, I wasn't sure if I was going to finish the first book. Uh, I met Clyde briefly in Oxford, Mississippi, at a book signing for I think it was Egypt. What was it? Eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven. And then met you at a party a few years later uh, when you were in Oxford at Richard Howorth's house. And right. we go, we go way back, but I've, I've enjoyed um, the books for many years, and it's an honor to be sitting here with you on stage tonight after all these many years and many, many books. So the question is, what are you working on now? I'm working on a novel, and uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, it's been many years since I've worked on a novel, but I want to mention the name of a store, not a bookstore. Uh, thinking about names, if I may. Um, it was Bill's uh, veterinarian and taxidermy. <laughs> and there was a little sign underneath that said, either way, you get your cat back. <laughs> that popped in my head. But I'm working on a novel, and I'll tell you the story that helped start the novel came from a Baptist preacher who was in the mountains asked, this is true, asked to preach a funeral of a Pentecostal preacher who had been bitten by three copperheads and had died. And he said, sure, I'll, I'll do the funeral. And they said, just before he went up to do the funeral, <clears throat> the son of the preacher wants to say a word afterwards. It was open casket throughout. He preached the funeral. The son, he then said, the son wants to speak a word. Would you please come up? The son comes up with a cage with the, the three copperheads. He opens it, 
dumps it into the casket, closes the casket, and says, you took him out, you're going out with him. <laughs> it's not funny, is it? Look at the mouths that are open. It, it, it really, it was an amazing story. So that's where I started, and uh, that's the end of that. See, Clyde, with your stories, you, you, we never know what's true, even when you say they're true. Even. This is what a Baptist preacher told me at breakfast about two months ago. I'd had two other stories that got me in the mountains, and when he told me that, the two, you know, did you meet Tim McLaurin? Yeah, I knew him well. Well, yeah. Tim McLaurin, uh, a photographer friend of Tim's, Tom Rankin, you might know Tom. No, Tom, he lives in uh, oh, Hillsborough. that's right. Hillsborough, yeah. You know Jim from, from, uh, from uh, Mississippi. Right. Well, Tim had a... Uh, phoenix on his chest and uh ask his new wife to take a photograph of it after he died because he was dying of cancer and he did and they were in the room in the back of the funeral home taking the picture and another friend drove up behind the funeral home with tim's coffin that he had just built i'm realizing this is a little strange but well, i'm getting to the to the punchline i don't know why how i got it. so and and so they the the funeral home director comes up and they walk out to the to the to the pickup truck with a coffin in the back of it, and the funeral home director, the mortician, puts his hand on the wife of Tim and says, I like it when a family takes a funeral personal. <laughs> now, that's supposed to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> the other one wasn't. Uh, but that's, that's what I'm working on. So those are the three stories that I'm working on, and, I, and we probably won't hear what Wiley's working on now. Did but. Tim ever tell you the story uh, when he was... He was um you know, he was snake handled, lots of snakes, play with them all the time. And he was uh, undergoing chemo, had just been shot with chemo, and he was at a school showing the kids some of the snakes, and he was uh, inadvertently, a snake bit him, and the snake died. <laughs> no. Well, he told it as a true story, but, with, you know, with these North Carolina writers, you can't believe it. When they say it's a true story, you better not believe much of anything, especially, especially those with, you know, backgrounds like ours, the, the fundamentalist, uh, um, far right-wing fundamentalist Baptist, the, the way we grew up. Um, RAs. Yeah, RAs, Royal Ambassadors, yeah. What are you working on, Wiley? I'm working on a new book that'll be out, and I'm, I'm finished with a book that'll be out in October called The Last Ballad. It's about a mill strike in my hometown in Gastonia, the Lorraine Mill Strike uh, that happened in 1929. It was one of the fundamental labor struggles in American history. And I grew up in Gastonia not knowing a word about it. Uh, my family comes from the mills, and I didn't know about the mill strike until I went to graduate school in Louisiana. And whoever thought you'd go to Louisiana and learn anything, right, um, being from Mississippi. <laughs> but uh, so I get down to Louisiana, and I say, I'm from Gastonia. And the professor says, oh, the Luray Mill Strike. And I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> so like all good graduate students, I went to Wikipedia and looked it up and uh, saw that this major mill strike uh, had occurred in my hometown. Uh, the woman uh, my novel focuses on is named Ella Mae Wiggins. Um, it's about her struggle when she gets swept up in this mill strike trying to save her children. Uh, she works 72 hours a week in a mill. She makes $9. Um, one of her children has died. And when she sees a chance for selfhood and for self-actualization and for economic you know, prosperity in whatever form that takes, she jumps into this mill strike, uh, not understanding the communist impulses that are driving it, not understanding what's at stake. With the racial struggle, she tries to integrate the labor union, and uh, the novel's the story of that summer. But I got, I got a story about Clyde. You're talking about preachers. He actually christened our youngest daughter. Uh, our oldest daughter was christened by a real preacher. Uh, <laughs> and uh, one of my buddies from high school is an Episcopal priest up in Asheville, and he came down and christened our, our oldest daughter. 
And we didn't want to bring him all the way down and put him out again. So my wife said, well, who should we get in Wilmington? I said, let's ask Clyde. She said, do you think he'd do it? And I was like, I don't know. So I was like, I got my phone out and texted him. And he said, yeah, when? She said, is he a preacher? And I was like, no, he's the opposite of that, actually. <laughs> and so the day of the christening, we did it at this local park in this little gazebo. And Clyde got there early and he had his mandolin and he wrote a song for, her, for our daughter. And this group came up to him and said, are you using this gazebo? And he said, yeah, I'm about to do a christening. And they said, well, are you a preacher? And he said, no, no, my friends hate preachers. That's why they asked me to do it. What do y'all do? And they said, we're all preachers. <laughs> so, so when you have a religious story from Clyde, just know where it's coming from. And, 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 and coincidentally, we had a photographer taking some pictures of our daughter, you know, doing some pose shots. And that group hung out there. And as we were doing our pictures, they slowly formed a ring around us. And then they joined hands. And then they muttered a prayer, and then they ran. So that's what, that's what he will do for your religious gathering if you want to, you know, employ him. So is that christening legal? No. Not in the state of North Carolina, it's not, no. You do this often? That's the first and last time I've done a christening. <laughs> Actually, I'll, if, if you need, need me, John. I'm, well, I don't know. If you, write, if you write an individual song and you, and you go through all that trouble, it might be Something you ought to, could be a career. Uh, that's a good idea. I'm he glad. said he wants to branch off into full immersion baptism. Yeah. And there's got to be a fountain around and here. Snake handling and snake handling. snake handling, sure, yeah. Can I add to that snake story? Do you mind? This is a podcast. There's no script. There's no okay. deadline. There's nothing. Um, the, the story, and, and John had it exactly right. Tim pulled a snake out of a, he carried a, a pillow case. He pulled a snake out. And it bit him, and he told the students, he said, look, it really didn't hurt that badly. It's just a little bit of red there. And he put the snake back, and the snake died. As, and a new class came in of students. And Tim reached in and, and realized the snake was dead. He pulled it out, and he said, now, let me show you. And he shook it a little bit so it looked like it would be alive. And he said, and he held it up to his hand. He said, look at that. He won't even bite. <laughs> he put it back in. Yeah, Tim was a character. We could talk about him a long time. Did you meet Tim? No. no. So um, let's do something different. You want to? We're going to read a little bit. We're going to take turns reading. Each of us is going to read a short passage. Bring your book. I had to bum a book off this lady right there. I, from my, I signed it 500 books today and forgot to bring one. So uh, would you read first, Clyde? Uh, happily. From what? And this is uh, Papa Daddy's book for new fathers, uh, and I'll read a couple of pages. But two stories uh, that are, have to do with a couple of my sons, they told me I could tell these two stories. They're true stories. And they're here, Ridley on the, my left and Nathaniel on my right. Um, Ridley, we had our first family meeting when he was three years old. And five, three, and two, a daughter, Truma, who's not here. Um, the boys had been up in the middle of the night at a vacation house squirting perfume into a, in a bathroom, and we had a family meeting to say they couldn't do that. So I talked for a few minutes. They were sitting on the floor. I had my back up against the wall, and um, I said, we, we can't do that when we're in somebody's house. I said, Christina, to my wife, would you like to say something? She came up and said something, and uh, I said, she finished. I said, would anybody else like to say anything? And Ridley, age three, raised his hand. So I let him come up and put his back against the wall, and we all sat there, and he looked, and I said, do you have anything to say? I said, well, go ahead. He said, poopy butt. 
Nathaniel, first day home from uh, kindergarten, five years old, honest story. He said I could tell it. He comes in. We're sitting around the dinner table, and he says, anybody in this family who's ever stuck your finger in your butt, raise your hand. <laughs> I looked at Christina. She looked at me, and before we could say or do anything, he said, anybody who hadn't, raise your hand. <laughs> so the first page of the book, uh, this is written for fathers. Uh, after I'd had a bunch of kids and uh, decided that the anxiety was normal, but conceivably I could reduce it a little bit. A few weeks before the baby is born, go ahead and install the car seat. This could take one to four days. <laughs> For safe installation, certain hooks are located out of sight, down in the seat crack where you'd slide your hand if you were looking for something lost. If your car doesn't have these hooks, you're required by law to buy a different car. <laughs> One of your cousins or a brother or a sister-in-law will eventually inspect the installation of the seat and will get very upset because it's too, clo too loose or somehow not hooked up right, and they will call the authorities. This relative will be a vegetarian. <laughs> I just added that onto the paragraph, and when I read it the first time, everybody laughed, and I figured out the reason that they laughed is because it's true. <laughs> okay, one more paragraph. Night feeding duties. And again, this is for fathers. If your wife is breastfeeding, oh, earlier I talked about a cousin who got rid of a little bassinet. Why, why bother with a bassinet? Why buy a bassinet? Never bought one. When you can use a cooler. <laughs> he took the top off a cooler and used a bassinet. So you'll hear a reference to that. If your wife is breastfeeding, you should share night feeding duties with her. That means when the baby starts crying and as you're, uh, as, just as you're falling to sleep, you pick the baby up from the cooler at the foot of the bed and bring it to your wife's side. Some book will have instructed you to always keep track of which breasts she used last by noting L for left and R for right in a small notebook. But the best way is to sort of juggle both breasts to see which one is heavier. <laughs> This will normally wake her up. <laughs> but if she won't wake up, whisper that you want to make love, and she will try to escape, thus waking up. Unbutton her pajamas and prepare the baby for the appropriate breast. The hungry baby's head will bob and jerk around while he looks cross-eyed for anything that resembles a nipple. You should keep him away from the bedside radio because he will suck the knobs off it. <laughs> That's it. When was this published? Published in uh, 2014. 2014. 2014. Uh, can I ask uh, how it did in the marketplace? It did okay. Not that, <laughs> it did okay. Not, not as well as Little Brown expected it to. <laughs> so, Wiley, back to you. Uh, you're talking about the next novel is based on a true story. Mm -hmm. And your last novel about the two girls is roughly based on a true story. So um, where do you get these stories? Well, my first book uh, was based on uh, a story that I, again, heard in graduate school. Um, I was raised Southern Baptist, which means um, that I can't dance. And that when I get excited, I talk really loud. That's really it. That's all that really means to me. Um, but uh, my first book is about 
the fallout in the community after a little boy dies during a healing service in a snake handling church. And I learned about that story in graduate school. It happened in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where a little boy was, was smothered during a healing service. And I took that story. I was living in Louisiana when I heard it, but I missed North Carolina. So I took that story that happened in Milwaukee that I learned about in Louisiana, and I put it in North Carolina. And I got to write about home. And my second novel is about two little girls who are kidnapped by their father, uh, who's a washed-up minor league baseball player. And um, it comes in part from two little girls that I was raised with in Gastonia who were foster children who ended up being murdered by these two guys they were dating. And they were, I believe, 15 and 12 at the time. And the tragedy of their lives just had always stayed with me. And so I kind of wrote this book with them in mind, with their spirits in mind, thinking like, what if somebody had stepped in? What if somebody had, had changed their lives? Because when you're 12 and 15, you can't really change your own life. We like to believe that we can, but when you're born into a certain set of circumstances, it's hard to be your own hero at that age. And so the two little girls in my second novel, The Stark Road to Mercy, they get a, they get a hero. You, uh, you teach? I do sometimes. I'm writer in residence at UNC Asheville right now, so I teach there half the year. I live in what Asheville. What does that mean? It means I just kind of hang out and wait for somebody to ask me to write something. And uh, in my residence, of course. Are um, you a writer in residence? You used to be, right? Well, actually, I'm, uh, I teach in the creative writing department. Okay. I teach in the creative writing department. Okay. Okay. But you're an actual writer in residence. Yes, sir. They brought, I went to undergraduate at UNCA, and they, they asked me to come back. And so I teach uh, a fiction writing class um, one semester a year. And during that same semester, I teach Southern Lit. So it's an amazing, amazing day. You were raised Southern Baptist? I was. Were you raised Southern Baptist? I was raised Southern Baptist. Are you, are you Southern Baptist now? I, I think I know the answer. Actually, I, I, I go to a Baptist. I'm not Southern Baptist, but I, I, I irregularly attend a Baptist church to listen to the music and to uh, the good preacher there. Well, I think, you, I think both you guys should clarify for all those people out there who are going to listen to the podcast that there's a big difference between Southern Baptist and snake handlers. Yeah. Okay. You take that, Wiley. Okay? Quite a difference. Quite a difference. You know, I was raised in a, in a church where the oral tradition was very important. It wasn't uncommon for our preacher to come in and say, you know, I prepared a sermon this morning, but right before I was getting out of the car, God laid it on my heart to preach something else. So he just closed his Bible and just go, you know, for an hour. And it was one of those churches where you'd kind of be dozing off in the pews and all of a sudden he'd say, Jesus, and you would like jump, you know. And kick the pew in front of you or spill something. Um, but it was a church that didn't appeal to performance the way a holiness church does or a snake handling church. A snake handling church believes that um, the New Testament has to be real. The, the book of Mark, they, they will, these signs will accompany those who believe in them. They will take up serpents. They will heal the sick. They will raise the dead. Drink they will po- speak in new poison, tongues. Drink- they can drink poison. Um, they believe in order for the, 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 the word of God to be the literal word of God, somebody's got to be doing this stuff, so it may as well be them. But oftentimes, these are people without a lot of hope in their lives. They're often economically disenfranchised. They're oftentimes regionally isolated. Um, and that's not necessarily the case in the Baptist church. But I think there still is that appeal to the oral nature of storytelling, of looking for signs like, you know, I, I'm a child of the 80s, and I was raised not far from PTL with Jimmy and Tammy Faye Baker. And I grew up with adults saying things like, you know, the devil's working on Jim. Mm, devil's working on Jim. 
And even as a kid, I remember thinking, maybe Jim's just a jerk. And the devil's like, I'm going to stay home. Jim's doing fine on his own. He doesn't need my influence. And so, you know, I was raised in a tradition that that sees the hand of God and the hand of Satan daily in one's life. And so does the holiness church. But those visible expressions of faith, holding a flame to your face or picking up a rattle timber rattler, drinking strychnine. It's not as expressive in the Southern Baptist Church. It's Are more, you Southern Baptist now? I'm not. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a regular attendee of any denomination. My wife is, uh, was raised Catholic. She's from Long Island. And so, you know, I still, and I, y'all are probably the same, like the Robert Duvall movie, The Apostle. Have y'all seen that? They're doing like a roadside baptism. And I watched that with my wife. And she said, God, that's, that's a bizarre behavior. And she looked over at me and I just had tears coming down my face because that stuff still appeals to me. You know, the hymns, the altar call, a lot of that language. I still have a very visceral response to that. So there's still something in my nature that, that repairs to that or that appeals to in some way. Um, but yeah, I'm no longer, you know, like the right. going to church on Wednesday night for supper kind of attending. Yeah, we left the uh, Southern Baptist Church uh, close to 30 years ago. Uh, when the church became so political, mm-hmm. uh, it really just switched to becoming uh, almost a, a political arm. And we're now uh, Presbyterians and, um, you know, regular worshipers, enjoy our church, enjoy uh, a, a, a clergy that's very educated mm-hmm. and a more, um, a more dignified way of worshiping, I guess, is what we enjoy now. Enough, enough of the religion stuff, Claude. Um, do you write every day? No. <laughs> but. <laughs> well, this is your 14th book, and look how thin it is, okay? <laughs> <laughs> this is my 38th book, and look how thick it is, okay? <laughs> what, what are you waiting on? Uh, I, got, I got three kids, 14 and under, is one thing, and uh, teaching pretty regularly. And trying to paint and do some other things, play some music, but uh, it's nice to be in a um, on a stretch working on a novel because it's been several years. I worked on a nonfiction book, and uh, it, when you have the characters uh, and the situation in your head, and you pick up stuff daily that you can work in—not every day, but you can move, you can work into the novel. I love Rainey. I got to tell you, I read I read it in 1985 when it came out. Bought it in hardback at Square Books in Oxford, and probably laughed as hard as everybody else laughed. Rainy was a. Do you have a favorite? Um, if I had uh, people ask me if I have a favorite, and the way I answered, if I had them all in a boat and I had to get rid of all of them except one, the one I would keep would be the float plane notebooks yeah. because it was mostly involved with my family. Um, and and about the church, I'm sorry to go back just a little bit, but Rain, I just a line from Rainy. She goes to an Episcopal church for the first time ever. She's raised Baptist, and uh, she said it was the most unusual service. Said uh, they, um, I didn't, I, I didn't recognize and couldn't sing along with any of the hymns, and neither could the regular people there, <laughs> <laughs> because the, in the Baptist church you knew the hymns, and when I went to Episcopal church, it seemed like they were kind of wandering around and not singing. With gusto, but I appreciate that compliment. Yeah. Uh, Wiley, what's your what's your um, process? You write every day. My pos- process is mostly driven by panic and fear. Um, 
I don't I don't necessarily write on you know the novel at hand every day, but you know I write for a, a couple magazines like Clyde and I both write for a magazine here in Greensboro called O Henry. Um, I work on some short stories. Um, I've got a friend of mine who's a writer named Jess Walter, and he's published a number of books and had a lot of success. And I said, you, you write so much. You write articles and stories and novels, and you've got a great nonfiction book. How do you do it? And he said, because I believe you can always write something. You can always work on something. And so I try to take that, um, keep that in mind. But I, I don't write every day uh, as much as I would like to. I've got two young children but Clyde's one of the busiest people I know. He's kind of our public intellectual in Wilmington, which I know that's scary as hell, what you've witnessed so far today. But this man's got his pilot's license. He paints. He's tall. You know, all the things I want to be. <laughs> his kids are younger than mine. Um, okay. But uh, I would like to be more rigorous than I am. Um, but I do read a lot, and I consider that part of the process of writing. I read so much more than I write. And that's always been a big, important part of it for me. Support for Book Tour with John Grisham comes from Audible. By then, the gang had stopped at a cheap motel off Interstate 295 near Philadelphia. Trey parked the van beside an 18-wheeler and away from the lone camera monitoring the parking lot. Mark took a can of white spray paint and covered the Princeton University printing on both of the van's doors. In a room where he and Trey had stayed the night before, the men quickly changed into hunting outfits and crammed everything they'd worn for the job, jeans, sneakers, sweatshirts, black gloves, into another duffel. In the bathroom, Jerry noticed the small cut on his left wrist. He had kept a thumb on it during the ride and noted that there was more blood than he'd realized. He wiped it clean with a bath cloth and debated whether to mention it to the others. Not now. Maybe later. If that story from John Grisham's Camino Island made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com slash Grisham. That's audible.com slash Grisham. This little book tour I'm on, is, there are 13 stops, and, and five of the 13 are in North Carolina, uh, North Carolina bookstores. And uh, thank you. And one of the cool things about it is, is going to uh, seeing stores like Scuppernong sure. and Malaprops and places like that I've never been before. But also meeting you guys, meeting a lot of writers from Carolina. Some, some I knew before, but some meeting for the first time. Met Ron Rash a week or so ago, and I knew Jill McCorkle and you know Kay Gibbons from many years ago. Uh, why are there so many active young writers in North Carolina? I think we have great role models. Um, I think North Carolina, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, but North Carolina and Mississippi, I think nationwide are the best states in which to be a writer. I think they're the states that are the most supportive of their writers in terms of the reading public, but also institutionally in terms of the educational system, especially the colleges and universities. But, you know, North Carolina's got a long tradition, you know, going back centuries. And I'm from North Carolina, but when I came back, my wife and I were living in West Virginia when my first book came out. When I came back, Clyde welcomed me with open arms, Jill, Randall Keenan, Daniel Wallace, Ron Rash, Lee Smith, people who, you know, I mean, they shouldn't even be talking to me. Um, but they like went out of their way to be friends with me. And it's that kind of nurturing atmosphere that 
that makes you not only want to write, but it makes you want to believe that maybe you can have a career. If somebody who's already been successful or has been doing it for a number of years believes in you and invites you to do stuff like this or to do other events, it just makes it, it makes it feel possible. Um, and so I think that's why North Carolina has a lot of young writers, Taylor Brown down in Wilmington, um, a lot of great writers in this area. Um, Holly Goddard, Goddard Jones at UNC Greensboro. I mean, they're everywhere. It's just a, a, an encouraging environment. You've also got uh, such a rich uh, geographical mix. You've got, you know, the, the, the very uh, diverse culture in Appalachia. You've got the farm country, the, 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 the legacy of tobacco farming still, not legacy, but still. You've got the ocean. You've got, you know, a state that's really blessed with a lot of different geographical regions. And, and people ask me about Mississippi, and I, I say, well, Anywhere where you have uh, great suffering and violence and injustice and racial uh, conflict, you're naturally going to have a lot of stories, a lot of sad stories, but still a lot of compelling narratives and really unbelievable stories about people who try to survive and do what's right. And, and, and the stories are, are still there. Uh, I think we're very lucky to, to live where we, where we live and to have um, – a lot of people who read our stories and, and support us. Will you read a section, Wally? I will. And uh, I will say about North Carolina that North Carolina for so long, historically and even currently, has been a state at war with itself. Um, you know, for so, so long, so much of the state's power was centered on the East Coast with the plantation culture. And then it was centered in the western part of the state with logging and and. Uh, that practice, and then it consolidated in the center part of the state. If you read someone like Thomas Wolfe, he comes down out of the mountains, out of Appalachia, and goes to school in Chapel Hill and is judged by the plantation owner's kids from the eastern part of the state. And we're still struggling with that, with, this, with what kind of state we're going to be, you know, whose, whose identity are we going to hold on to? I thought I'd read the first um, maybe 75 pages of my <laughs> book. It won't be out until October, so I can read more. To sate you until then. Uh, I'll read the first uh, page or so. This is uh, when you meet Ella. She has come down from the mountains of Tennessee into the upstate of South Carolina into a mill there. And she has settled in a small community outside Bessemer City. Her husband has run off on her. She's got some kids at home. And um, she's at the mill where she works. Saturday, May 4th, 1929. Ella May knew she wasn't pretty. She'd always known it. She didn't have to come all the way down the mountain from Tennessee to Bessemer City, North Carolina to find that out. But here she was now, and here she'd been just long enough for no other place in her memory to feel like home, but not quite long enough for Bessemer City to feel like home either. She sat on the narrow bench in the office of American Mill Number 2, the wall behind her vibrating with the whir of the card machines, the rollers, the spinners that raged on the other side, with lint hung up in her throat and lungs like tar, reminding herself that she'd already given up any hope of ever feeling rooted again, of ever finding a place that belonged to her and she to it. Instead of thinking thoughts like those, Ella turned and looked at Goldberg's brother's young secretary, where she sat behind a tidy desk just a few feet away. The soft late-day light that had already turned toward dusk now picked its way through the windows behind the girl. The light lay upon her dark, shiny hair and caused it to glow like some angel had just lifted a hand away from the crown of her head. The girl was pale and soft, her cheeks brushed with rouge, and her lips glossed a healthy pink. She wore a fine powder blue dress with a spray of artificial white spring flowers pinned to the lapel. She read a new copy of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and she laughed to herself 
and she wet her finger on her tongue, and she turned page after page while Ella watched. How old could that girl be, Ella wondered? Twenty? Twenty-five? Ella was only twenty-eight herself, but she felt at least two, three times that age. She stared at the girl's dainty, manicured hands as they turned the pages, and then she looked down at her own hands where they rested up, turned in her lap, her fingers intertwined as if they'd formed a nest. She unlocked her fingers and placed her palms flat against her belly, thought about the new life that had just begun to stir inside her, how its stirring often felt like the flutter of a bird's wing. A few years ago, Renee, my wife, and I were uh, going somewhere in the car. And if we're in the car, uh, if she's in the car by herself or with me, it doesn't matter. NPR is going to be on. Okay, it's always NPR. And uh, we were taking a long drive, and you came on the NPR station. I forget which one it was. And you read a section of, I think, your second novel. And Renee is from Raleigh. And she's got, uh, we, we, we kid each other about the way we pronounce certain words. Uh, the way they do it in North Carolina, the, around Raleigh, the way we do it in, you know, in, in northern Mississippi. We've always had a lot of fun uh, picking each other. And also her parents, who, who've been in Mississippi for 40 years, you know, we, we, we noticed the different pronunciations. And Renee said, that guy is from, from North Carolina, and I love his voice, and you were laughing a lot, whatever it was, the interview. She said, I'm going to read his book. And that's how we discovered Wiley Cash. So, so uh, she bought that one. I sold one book. <laughs> I sold one copy of that second book, and it was your. I wish I'd known that. You're doing okay. And uh, two years ago, we were uh, doing our annual summer road trip where we uh, take off to the beach in Florida, and we put the dog in the back seat, and we load up the SUV, and she uh, fixes some good food, and we take off. We try not to stop except for gas because of the dog. And we were listening to NPR, and there was a story about uh, stolen rare books. And uh, we have been collecting modern first editions for about 25 years. Uh, she, has been, she gives them to me as gifts. I'll buy them for her. I'll, I'll pick up one from a dealer here and there. Not serious collectors, but it's something we enjoy. And it's a lot of Faulkner, Hemingway, Steinbeck, Fitzgerald, uh, William Styron, you know, writers like that, modern uh, 20th century writers. So it's a, you know, we, we know a little bit about the market, enough to be dangerous. And we were captivated by the story of stolen rare books. And because we had nine hours to go, we started, as we often do, uh, thinking about a story. If, if, I, if I prompt her, she'll help me out. She'd rather just listen to the radio and, and have me shut up or take a nap. And uh, I said, what, what if we did a standalone mystery? No lawyers involved, no courtroom stuff, just a, a, a standalone mystery involving stolen rare books. How, what would the story be? So one thing led to another. And uh, by the time we got to Florida, we had an idea for what became Camino Island. And it deals with um, uh, a bookseller at a, at a resort town in Florida who uh, has a very nice bookstore. It's just like Square Books. I took Square Books in Oxford, and I put it in this fictional town in Florida. And the bookseller is, uh, has a, makes a nice living out of his bookstore. He also trades rare books and does quite well with that. And unknown to all of his friends and everybody except maybe the FBI, he also dabbles in the uh, stolen rare book market, which is a very murky world. And uh, that's our that's our hero. And so some some books uh, are missing. Uh, he is the prime suspect. Uh, they can't get near him, so they uh, hire a young teacher of creative writing at UNC Chapel Hill 
who's just who's just lost her job because of budget cuts, and they they they, they bribe her with enough money to go to this beach uh, town that she's very familiar with, uh, to sort of infiltrate this this bookstore and and find out if the guy has the manuscripts. She has no idea what she's doing. Uh, she grew up on the beach as a little girl, spent her summers there with her grandmother. Her name is Mercer, and this is one of my favorite scenes from the book when uh, she goes to check out the turtles, something her grandmother taught her to do. High tide was at 3.21 a.m., and when it crested, the loggerhead turtle slid onto the beach and paused in the sea foam to look around. She was three and a half feet long and weighed 350 pounds. She had been migrating at sea for over two years and was returning to a spot within 50 yards of where she had made her last nest. Slowly, she began to crawl. A slow, awkward, unnatural movement for her, for her. As she labored along, pulling with her front flippers and pushing with more power with her with her rear legs, she paused frequently to study the beach, to look for dry land and for danger, for a predator or any unusual movement. Seeing none, she inched ahead, leaving a distinctive trail in the sand, one that would soon be found by her allies. 100 feet ashore at the toe of the dune, she found her spot and began flinging away loose sand with her front flippers. Using her cupped rear flippers as shovels, she began forming the body pit, a round, shallow burrow four inches deep. As she dug, she rotated her body to even the indentation. For a creature of the water, it was tedious work, and she paused often to rest. When the body pit was finished, she began digging even deeper to construct the egg cavity, a teardrop-shaped chamber. She finished, rested some more, then slowly covered the egg cavity with the rear of her body and faced the dune. Three eggs drop at the same time, each shell covered with mucus and too soft and flexible to break upon landing. More eggs followed two and three at a time. While laying, she didn't move, but appeared to be in a trance. At the same time, she shed tears, excreting salt that had accumulated. Mercer saw the tracks from the sea and smiled. She carefully followed them until she saw the outline of the loggerhead near the dune. From experience, she knew that any noise or disturbance during nesting could cause the mother to abort and return to the water without covering her eggs. Mercer stopped and studied the outline. A half moon peeked through the clouds and helped define the loggerhead. The trance held. The laying continued without interruption. When the clutch held a hundred eggs, she was finished for the night and began covering them, covering them with sand. When the cavity was filled, she packed the sand and used her front flippers to refill the body pit and disguise the nest. When she began moving, Mercer knew the nesting was over and the eggs were safe. She gave the mother a wide berth and settled into a dark spot at the toe of another dune hidden in the dark. She watched as the turtle carefully spread sand over her nest and scattered it in all directions to fool any predators. Satisfied her nest was safe, the turtle began her cumbersome crawl back to the water, leaving behind eggs she would never bother with again. 
she would repeat the nesting once or twice during the season before migrating back to her feeding ground hundreds of miles away. In a year or two, maybe three or four, she would return to the same beach again and nest again. So um, we have time to take some questions from you guys if you would like to join in the conversation. Um, we'll uh, try to give you good answers and ask you. I will repeat the question, so don't worry about it, Mike. Does anybody have um, a question? Yes, ma'am. What is my process? Uh, well, thankfully, my kids are grown, so I'm no longer coaching Little League Baseball, and uh, I have a lot more time to write. I've always written early in the morning uh, from, you know, 7 to 10, 11 every day, uh, five days a week. Um, and, you know, you do that for five or six months. I start a new legal thriller every year on January the 1st uh, with the goal of finishing by July the 1st, which is next Saturday. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not typing today. Um, that's kind of the pro, you know the, the the process the schedule I'm on and usually uh, by after Labor Day I'll get bored and uh, start writing something else. I wrote most of this last fall September October November December, uh, but it's you know I'm still um, thankfully the words and ideas are still coming awfully fast and I have trouble. Um, deciding what to write next. So no block. Are you blocked, Clyde? Uh, I have, not normally, not <laughs> normally. I've been eating a lot of fruit and vegetables lately. <laughs> and, uh, it's cut back on his dairy, oh, so I'm it's sorry. helped. Uh, I, I want to take this opportunity to thank John for doing this and for going to independent bookstores and for asking me and Wiley, if I may speak for Wiley, uh, and for being what he has been for, for books and literature and bookstores and going out of, of his way in so many ways uh, and, and being about the right stuff. So I want to thank you. Thank you, Clyde. I tell my students to ask the question if they do have a writer's block. Um, there are three treasure chests. Um, the treasure chest, which is your experience, the treasure chest, which is all you know about, have seen, read, observed, and the treasure chest, which is your imagination. And if you get stuck, ask the question, what if, and start grabbing tools out of that imagination treasure chest. Just make up as much as you can. Make a long list of what could happen next. What if this happened? Pick one from your guts, what feels right, and start writing again. Wiley, do you uh, sometimes suffer from writer's block? I, I suffer more from, I don't, I don't know that I believe in writer's block. I think I believe in writer's fear. It's kind of like, you know, Moby Dick, the great white whale is the great white page or the great white screen, you know, and, and with language, we're just hurling it at the page or the screen, hoping it makes sense and hoping it's some measure of what we're feeling or what we're seeing. So I think I mostly suffer from fear of, starting out on a project on the wrong foot and not being able to get my footing again, which is as soon as I do it, I realize that's a ridiculous fear, like most fears. Um, but I had a, a, a professor, a writing professor. Um, my mentor is Ernest Gaines. I'm actually going down to Louisiana tomorrow to spend some time with him. But 
I had a, a writing professor in college who said, write from the place of, from your childhood where you felt deep fear. Remember that place. Where did you, what did you fear? And then what did you enjoy? Like what gave you intense joy as a, chi- as a child? Where was the safe place? And where was the scary place? And if you're writing from those places, you'll be writing with some depth of emotion to generate ideas. And so I, I find myself thinking about those poles a lot when I'm writing. You guys should try legal thrillers. I can't do it. I can't. What I liked about this book, John, is that I could never write a mystery where the reader is kept in the dark because I'm not smart enough to fool the reader. You are. I, I know I'm not. This book, I liked it because we kind of know the score, but we're waiting for the moment when everybody else knows the score. And there's such a thrill in that. You know, I thought that was a really fun way to do it. Well, thank you. With legal thrillers, I mean, I watch lawyers, trials, law firms, cases, courts, appeals, you know, trends and litigation, all that kind of stuff, because I do it. It comes natural because I was a lawyer for 10 years. And when you watch lawyers, the material is endless. I mean, you could never have a writer's block when you do what I do. There are too many stories out there. John, can I ask you a question? I have a question. Would you talk a minute about... um, a concept I've recently become aware of is in dealing with some legal issues. It's often not so much a matter of what's right or wrong. It's a matter of what's legal or illegal. So you could be on a moral crusade, et cetera, and there can be a technicality, which has to do with legal, something legal or illegal. So could you, I mean, I know you deal with those questions. In- Cloud, are you asking for legal advice? I mean, do you need uh- uh, of the, no, of the free nature? I, of the free nature. I, I was hoping I could do that after we finished here, but. <laughs> Let's do it over a drink, okay? Okay, we'll do that. <laughs> Next question. See, we'll give you a good answer if you'll ask a question. Yes, ma'am. The question is, do we, do, do we choose a topic for a book based on something that we uh, have an interest in or something that we want to know a lot more about and research along the way? You guys want to take a shot at that? I will. I, with, with this Mill novel, I'm really interested in our state's legacy of racial history, of class division, and uh, economic struggle. I'm really interested in that because that's where that's, those are conflicts, and conflict is where story comes from. And there are so many stories that can pop from those conflicts. The struggle for me, what I didn't know about was the real life of the real Ella Mae Wiggins. I mean, this is a real woman this novel is based on. And very little about her is known. And it was terrifying writing a novel about a real person about whom I could find nothing about, you know. Um, And so I really had to work to create a person and make her real, a person who really existed. And that was a real struggle. You know, the, the idea of the novel was so attractive. But writing about her was absolutely terrifying. I usually start with an image or an incident. Uh, my, my mother fell through a rocking chair and got stuck. And, and I came home one Sunday and she said, you're not going to believe what happened to me yesterday. I sat through that rocking chair yesterday. I wasn't going to tell anybody. And got down in there and, and, and the bottom was out and my hands were up and my legs were up. And all I could do was move my head and rock back and forth a little bit. Well, I had to write. A, I had to write about it. So there, the, the, and, and but I didn't know where it would go. You're right. You're not cut out for legal thrillers. <laughs> uh, so I usually start with something that strikes me. If it, I find much that's interesting, but something that strikes me, and I start with that image, and then 
relationships between people are big, in my view. Uh, and so I see relationships that have to be a couple of characters very quickly in, in whatever I'm writing. And then I start dealing with re- relationships and see what happens next. I look to see what happens next. Did you write about your mother? Uh, I wrote about a character who resembled my mother. Well, the, I asked that the question sort of in a – I'm very, trying to be delicate here because you have gotten yourself in trouble before. I have gotten in, myself in trouble before. With but, your fiction. With my fiction. But I t- let me tell you, the mother, the, some of my students won't write about their family because they're afraid. They say, I can't write about my mother. About I said, look, make a character based on your mother, and in the second chapter, have her murder somebody, and she won't believe it's about her. <laughs> or she won't admit it. She won't admit it. <laughs> Do you, uh, this is touched on briefly in Camino Island when, Mercer is our writer, and she's got a horrible case of writer's block. And Bruce is our, uh, the bookstore guy is trying to help her with a lot of advice. They talk about historical fiction, like what you're talking about, Wiley. This one uh, period of time, this one conflict, this one strike. Does it bother you to take a real person and sort of uh, fictionalize her? I mean, I know she's dead, so she can't sue you, <laughs> which is always a good thing. But, I mean, does it bother you to change somebody's life like that? Um, it doesn't because I think that the goal of fiction and writing realistic fiction, which we all do, is I always tell students, when, even when you're writing creative nonfiction, you can always doubt somebody's story, but you can't doubt their experience. And in writing this novel, what I'm trying to give you is the experience of the event of the Laurie Mill strike in the summer of 1929. The story of the mill strike, nobody knows. It's still being litigated right now in Gastonia. Like, I'll do an event in Gastonia, and little old ladies will come up to me and say, those communists shot at my daddy's house. You know, they're still, it's still alive, and nobody knows the story. The police chief was shot and killed. I mean, it was violent. I mean, a lot of competing forces. And so I'm concerned with making you feel what it felt like, because nobody knows the story. We've lost it. You know, so much is lost over time, especially historical fiction, that I think the, the issue is to make it feel real. Yes, sir, right here. The question is my, my, my non-legal uh, books, specifically uh, Bleachers and Playing for Pizza, where those ideas come from, I guess. Uh, well, I love sports. I played sports in high school, uh, dreamed of playing in college. Thought I was, I was a bona fide prospect, you know, first round draft pick in my mind, um, but nobody else thought so, so I didn't get drafted. I couldn't even play college baseball, but I really wanted to. But I, as a kid, I loved playing all the sports and, you know, follow sports now. I, I enjoy college sports primarily. Um, I wanted to, to write a baseball novel, but so many of the good baseball stories have already been done, and I kept waiting for the story. But for me, it all goes back to the story. You know, I got to find a story first. And I wrote two football books uh, in the meantime. I wrote Bleachers based on something I saw one time at a high school track in my hometown. Uh, I was running around the track. I was, I was a lawyer then. And up in the top corner of the, of the Bleachers, there was a gang of um, guys who had played before me, and they were having a little reunion, and they were having a whole lot of fun. I thought, you know, this is, those guys played you know, 30 years ago, so what's, they're, they're old guys now in my view. What, what are they talking about? Give me the idea of using a place like that to to focus a novel, based on a great you know based on a great football coach like I never had. So that's where the idea came from. Playing for pizza, I was in uh, I was in Bologna, Italy, researching a book called The Broker, 
and stumbled over the fact that they have American football in Italy. I had no idea because it's all soccer, you know. But there's a, you know, there's these big, tough Italian guys who love to just dress up in pads and pound each other once a week. And uh, the, the quarterback, they could, have, they could have three American players. The quarterback's always an American, a linebacker, and usually some little uh, running back nobody could catch. Uh, and they'd pay them a thousand bucks a month for four or five months, and these guys were, uh, you know. So that's where the story. Comes. I never know where a story's going to come from, and, I, and I've learned not to predict because they come out of everywhere. Okay, green T-shirt. Uh, the question is, how do you write good dialogue? Um, Clyde, you write some of the best. How do you do it? I think the first thing you I tell students to understand it's not talk written down. If you record a conversation and write it down as if it's dialogue, it will not work normally. I also say, and I, I, I both like and dislike rules of thumb, but if you've got more than three lines of someone talking, if it's not a speech, and you've got a problem maybe if it's a speech, but if it's over three lines, see about if you can cut it and let the other person say something. Also, when people are talking to each other, uh, I always think about what Conrad said. He said, you, it's, it's, it's nice to understand. It's nice to have your reader interested it's nice to blah, 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 blah. But what's most important is for the reader to see. So I have some motion, a cigarette butt thrown to the floor or head scratch, just touch so that the reader feels like he's there to experience the dialogue. So those are some things I tell uh, students and try to, and I'm sure you, both of you have ideas about writing dialogue. Uh, what, what I do with dialogue, and I, and I, love, I love dialogue. Because a lot, a lot of his courtroom scenes, you know, that stuff I've, I've done, written a lot of. Uh, when you're, when you want things to really move, uh, get into some good dialogue. I mean, the, the pages are really turning when you when you got people talking. When I write dialogue, I write a sentence or two, and I, I, I read it out loud, and I'll even get up and walk around and say it out loud. You know, don't you don't you love a a, a movie when the dialogue is real sharp and somebody says something in casual conversation, and you think, I wish I could, I wish I'd thought of that. That's pretty smart. Bam, 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 bam. You know, you can't overdo that. You, can, you can't be a comedian, but I'm always repeating the dialogue out loud. I repeat almost everything out loud as I write it, um, looking for ways to cut words out of it. You know, we, as writers, we, we have unlimited uh, space. You know, nobody tells us that the book has to be 300 pages long or 1,000. And most writers use too many words because of that. And I learned that as a young lawyer, you know, cut through all the legal crap and just tell me what you're trying to say. And, and for 10 years, I did that. As a, I mean, I, I made a conscious effort every day to write clean, cleanly, efficiently, and clearly as a lawyer. And so when I started writing, and I realized, you know, so many books are overwritten. So many books need to be edited. I'm always re- repeating my stuff out loud. Um, just to just to see how it sounds. Your comments on dialogue? Yeah, I think dialogue, it can't be actual speech. It has to be an approximation of speech. And, and like Clyde said, we don't talk in paragraphs. We talk in sentences. And in dialogue, we're always interrupting each other. Wait, what do you mean? What did you, you know, we're always interjecting and stopping each other. And I think when we're young writers, two things. John does a great job in this book of, Characters both like have knowledge, but they don't have the same knowledge, but they're testing each other out, feeling where the knowledge with each other stops. 
And that's a delicious experience for the reader to know that both characters are holding something back. And so if you have characters who are not sharing the same knowledge, you have natural dialogue. Where beginning writers get in trouble is where characters both know the same thing and are still talking about it. We don't do that. Unless you're making small talk with somebody at the store like, hot day, isn't it? Yes, it is a hot day. You would never have that conversation with your significant other. They'd be like, hot day, isn't it? Of course it is, you jerk. What do you think? I'm an idiot. You know what I mean? They would be, you know, you're not going to have a couple wake up and say, we've been married 50 years today. Yes, we have, honey. You may have a couple say, we've been married 50 years today. And the wife says, and it feels like so much longer, right? That's dialogue, right? Because they're at odds with each other. They, they, They don't share the same knowledge or the same understanding of that knowledge. And that's where the reader learns something. Um, and the characters are learning something. If dialogue is only for the reader, then you're, you're kind of showing your hand a little bit. Uh, are we edited? The question is, are we edited? And if so, how much? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, well, listen, well, I, I know some writers who've sold a lot of books, and they reach, they reach the point to where they uh, you know, turn into something late and say, don't, don't, I'm done with it. I'm not going to touch it. Spelling content. Oh, well, it's story. It's a story. It's the, the, you know, the whole plot story characterization. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I have my wife who reads everything first and she always has, and she has a very good ear for story and she has a very good ear for, or uh, eye for uh, characters, especially the female characters I struggle with. And she can't wait to take her red pen and make marks. I mean, it's really, it gives her a little real thrill. And um, so, we, so we, have, we have serious conversations about, uh, you know, the fiction. Um, if I get, if it, once she's done with it, then I'll polish it up and send it to New York. I'm, I'm really lucky. My agent uh, that I've had for 22 years was my editor, and he bought the firm in 1990. We go back to 1990 together, okay? We were together for 27 years. Five is the editor, 22 is the agent, and he, he does the edit. It's a line edit. Okay, it's, it's, it's almost definitely page by page. It, something is marked on almost every line or paragraph. It's a thorough edit, and the rules are with my wife and my agent and my publisher, and I've been with my publisher for 24 years, anybody can say anything. And, that, you know, if, if you don't like something, say it. There's no, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I want to make it better. And so we have a real open uh, relationship when it comes to, to the books, and I insist on being edited that heavily. Now, about half of what my agent points out I agree with, half I, I, I don't ignore, I consider, and don't do. But it's, it's a thorough, it's a very thorough edit, and then that's before it gets to copy editing. And uh, that's when the real fun starts is when they grind you through copy editing, but you're making the book better every time. And it's, editing is not any fun. Uh, you finish the book, you feel great. You can't wait to get it published. Forget about it. Oh, no. You got two more months of misery, um, you know, getting it, getting it polished up. Right, guys? Yeah. My, my wife's an attorney, and she's really smart and really cerebral, and she always questions me about characters' impulses. What's compelling this character to do this? And if I can't defend a character's action, then I'll know it's weak. And um, so I feel really confident by the time the book leaves our house and goes you know, to the next step. Um, and my editor is really wonderful at like turning up the emotional resonance of characters. He's, my editor is from Raleigh. So we, we feel very similarly about the world and we see things very similarly. So he's really good at 
turning up emotional tones and characters. Your editors? I'm lucky. God my, help them. <laughs> I'm lucky my, my wife is, a, is an excellent editor, and these two boys are good editors. They, <laughs> they read some of my stuff, and, and they're good. They have fresh eyes, and they, they're willing to say what they think. And it's important, as John pointed out. I've had two editors. My first one was a line-by-line line editor. She was absolutely wonderful. Uh, Shannon Ravenel, Louis Rubin, who was my publisher, also edited my work. He was wonderful. Most recently, in the last few books, um, uh, at Little Brown, I've had another editor who is who is hands off, but it's okay. I think I learned so much with the with the other two editors that, that helped me. She's more hands off than the others, but I love good editing, and it's really really important to me. Yes, ma'am. The question is, if I, if I start a legal thriller January the 1st, at what point do I show it to Renee for the first time, or what point do I get her involved? It's no fun to read a book over a six-month period. And, and if you do that, she, you, know, you forget stuff you've read in the early chapters. I get about halfway through, you know, about 200 pages or so, and, uh, or maybe even more. I'm really anxious for her to read it because I want to know if it's working. And one thing she's really good at, and this is the one criticism I can't stand, okay, and it happens all the time, she'll say, uh, this part here is really dragging. And the word dragging drive me nut, drives me nuts. I mean, I can't, I can't take that. I want the pages to turn. And so I'll fix it. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm always eager for her to take the first look and tell me it's brilliant. She's never said it's brilliant, okay? Um, <laughs> and then, I mean, I have to earn that, okay? Uh, and toward the end, we, we're getting close to July the 1st. We get down to chapter by chapter by chapter. And she's got better things to do. I mean, we've been through this so many times now. I have to, you know, I have to get really upset to make her read the fiction and, and edit. And so it's a, it's a, I can't say it's a fun process, but yeah, it's a fun process. Yeah, sure beats practicing law. Sometimes I'll give my wife something and say, I want you to read this, but I only want you to say good things about it. I'm really sensitive right now. I'm very fragile. You can only say good things about this. And sometimes she'll say, yeah, okay. And sometimes she'll say, I can't, I can't commit to that. And I'll say, Okay. The mistake, I think, is with, <clears throat> I've had two wives, and my first wife, she was a writer, and we edited each other, but we would comment on what the edit was, and I never comment on edits, and I have students who comment on edits, and we have a workshop, and a student will say, but this didn't move right, and if a student comes back and says, yes, but, that's not the purpose of editing. As John said, you get the comments, and you decide whether you use them or not, and it becomes much smoother when you understand that as part of the editing. Do you guys know writers who basically sort of refuse to be edited? I do know an ed a writer, and I'll not name him. He's no longer with us, but in my view, his books show it. Yeah. I mean, don't you uh, – I bet you, Wiley, you know, you know someone? I know students, but not writers. Okay. Uh, listen, I, I, read, I read a lot, and I, you know, we all, all want to read good books. And I, I've, I'll read a lot of books that are 600 pages long that could easily be 400 by a great writer, yes. and you and you you say to yourself, this guy, you know, I would cut this by a third or cut a hundred pages. It's not necessary. It's overkill, you know. And why why isn't this person edited? They probably are not. I don't know. You can I think you you can read you can you read new writers or any writer and read a few pages and you say this person has an excellent editor. Not always, but many times. Or you can say this person does not have an excellent editor. And I went to my second publisher because of um, <clears throat> I was just reading a David Sedaris book. And I said, he's really been edited well. So I tried to get uh, his editor or editor's company. Yes, ma'am. The question is about research. So, Wiley, with this book, The, the Last uh, Ballad, how did you research the story? You've already touched on it a little bit. 
I did a lot of stuff on the internet, obviously. That's the ease and comfort of, you know, technology. But um, a friend of mine is in a band called Old Crow Medicine Show, and I was talking to him, and he said, have you heard about the CD, Gastonia Gallop? And I said, no. And he said, it's a bunch of old Gastonia Mill songs. And so I started listening to these Mill songs written around the time Ella May was writing her own Mill songs that went on to be performed by Woody Guthrie and recorded by Pete Seeger. And it opened up this world to me of, of music that I'd never known that was created in my hometown. Um, but I do a lot of on-site stuff. Like I went to the mill where she worked. It's still there. Um, I went there a couple of months ago uh, and I met a guy who was still employed by the mill. Um, he had been there since the mid-70s and they employed over 200 people. And the day I was there, they had two people. And he took me upstairs where Ella worked in the spinning room and he said, the floors are the same. The rafters are the same. Here's where she would have checked in. Here's where the office would have been. And for me, there was no replacement uh, for being there and smelling it and touching it and walking through it and the physicality of the space to write about it and, and, and kind of re-inhabit it at my desk. And so I do a lot of research you know, academically, but I, I also try to do a lot of experiential research. Cloud, do you bother with research? <laughs> uh, one book... Uh... Uh, what kind of chair was it that your mom fell through? <laughs> I don't know, but that chair was on the back of a pickup truck I was driving. This is a sad story. Over a very tall bridge, and the wind took it off, and I, and I lost it. But Red Eye, the we- I wrote a Western, and I had to read uh, a lot. And I read, uh, I read, <clears throat> I took about, I took hundreds of pages of notes during a year that I read about the West. And it was so exciting that I, 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 at one point, thought about not writing the book, just make a, make a bibliography of all the books I'd read and hand that out and say, you've got to read these stories about the West. But eventually, uh, I became so absorbed that I forgot what I was doing. And I had to write up, put a big chart on my wall with my main characters with a line between each character with an arrow at the end of each line and say to myself, you're writing about relationships between characters. You've got to get back to that. And then let the and then and find out after you write your well. In my case, many times I write the story and then do the do the research. I've seen too many students get in, so involved with research they forget the story they're writing. We're talking about fiction. I wrote a nonfiction book in which I had to study uh, a lot about flying airplanes, and uh, then I had a bunch of people write me to tell me the mistakes I'd made. Some and they were right in some cases. So for me, it's been a mixed bag. But normally, I just make stuff up. You know, I'm glad you said that because. That's what I do, uh, especially when, when we're talking about pla- uh, places and and streets and things. I write the book and do the research because you you have a checklist of all the things you have to see. My the book I'm finishing now is um, the next legal thriller comes out in October, uh, and I'm almost done with it. And um, it takes place in Washington D.C., a place I know pretty well. And I wrote the book blind, as I say, or using you know Google Google Maps. You, you can get a lot of stuff. But without spending time there, when the manuscript was finished, the first draft, I made a list of all the places I had to go see, and they, they was precise. And I go to Washington, I get a car and a driver, and I go go here, 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 take photographs. I mean, that's the way I do it. But if if I if I'd researched Washington before I started the novel, I'd still be researching. I'd have never started. James Joyce traveled for days. I've I've heard the story to find out exactly how tall a fence was in a real place that one of his characters stepped over. It's just an interesting story about that. Can you read James Joyce? Uh, I'm just kidding. I can with a translation. I, I read <laughs> Ulysses, but I had a book to read to help me read it. <laughs> we have time for one more question. Yes, ma'am. 
questions about movies and how how I feel when the the book gets adapted and they make changes. And um, you know, I've been lucky. I've had eight books. I've had nine books adapted, and eight were fun to watch. I, mean, I don't. I don't. I, that's pretty good with Hollywood. Um, so what was the ninth one? Right. Uh, <laughs> I didn't like the chamber. I thought it was a bad movie. Uh, listen, I, when you deal with Hollywood, you, um, you, you sign a contract, you take the money. It's going to be something different. If you don't like that, don't sign the contract. Um, a, a movie cannot change a word of a novel. It's somebody else's interpretation. Oh, they changed your book. I saw the firm. They screwed up the ending. Why would you let them do it? Well, you know, uh, why? <laughs> because they wrote me a check. Um, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. You know, I, I, I deal with, we, we try to sell the rights to good people, and there are so many talented people out there. Uh, my problem is Hollywood does not make smart adult dramas anymore. I mean, it's, it's just they don't do it. And they, 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 they can't take the model of those early, early movies from 20 years ago and where everybody made plenty of money. Uh, big cast, big box office, big everything, and they're, and they're on TV somewhere tonight, you know, being recycled. Um, that doesn't work for Hollywood nowadays because they're too busy making, you know, Spider-Man 5 for China. Uh, that's the model. And you know what? I can't control that. I have no control. I, I can do nothing to get movies made, so I, I stopped worrying about it. My job is to write novels. We are out of time. Thank you, Clyde. Thank you, Wiley. Thank you, uh, Scuppernong, for a wonderful afternoon. And uh, thank you, wonderful crowd, for coming out tonight. See y'all. This is Book Tour, and we'll see you down the road. Thanks to my guests, uh, Clyde Edgerton and Wiley Cash, and the great staff here at Scuppernong, and all the volunteers and all the great customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week on the road with Book Tour.